Sir Arthur Doyle was the creator of the Sherlock Holmes series. You know that there are some Sherlock friends out there. But he also wrote a book entitled The Lost World. And in The Lost World, Doyle narrates the adventures of Professor Challenger. He, along with his expeditionary team, arrive in South America and they climb a plateau and lo and behold, they discovered a new world. A world that was not known previously to others. Here, in this world, were dinosaurs still alive and people living a very different lifestyle. When Professor Challenger returned to his home and communicated his discoveries, he met with skepticism and unbelief. The scientific community refused to believe. There is a sense in which we may reject and refuse to believe facts and truths that are communicated to us. And we may do so without any personal injury at all. We may not believe, for instance, that the earth revolves around the sun. And we may think that the revolution, Copernican revolution, was wrong. But even if we did believe that somehow the sun revolved around the earth, that does not affect our daily life and has little to do with how we live. It does not affect us in any meaningful way. And so while we might reject certain truths without having to pay a personal cost, to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and to refuse to believe in him brings great cost because it causes one to lose eternal salvation. Faith then in Christ is imperative. Faith in the scientific community may not be imperative, but faith in Jesus Christ is imperative for this life and for the next. The Apostle Paul underscores this imperative, the imperative of faith and faith in Christ in his argument for justification and for salvation. The Apostle Paul pushes back against the Judaizers, the false teachers who had come from Jerusalem and were perverting the gospel of truth. They were telling the Galatians that they did not need, that they did not need merely to believe in Christ to be saved, but that they must indeed be circumcised. And their gospel has been encapsulated as a gospel of circumcision. And Paul resists this. In chapter 3, he calls them foolish Galatians and, say, and says to them, in effect, the, the reason you have departed from the belief in, in that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, by faith, and you have now turned to the teachings of the false teachers that you must be keeping the law to be justified, it is because you have been bewitched. 
they have seduced you. Paul will then in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3 of Galatians lay out the first proof that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. And for that he turns to their own personal experience. He wants them to think back about when they were converted. And he's asking them essentially, were you converted? Did you receive the gift of justification? Did God declare you righteous on the basis of your obedience to the law? That is to the Old Testament commandments. And Paul issues a series of rhetorical questions. They are staccato questions. They are rapid-firing questions, but they're all intended to result in one response. No, we did not receive salvation or justification by keeping the law. In fact, Paul, the, the main thrust of these questions are to be found in verse 2 when he says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you receive the Spirit of God where you converted through the works of the law or by the hearing of faith or hearing and believing the gospel? Clearly, the answer is they became Christians, they received the Spirit, not by keeping the law, but by hearing and believing the gospel message. So Paul begins by saying, if you want to turn away from the gospel that you have heard, that one is saved by faith in Christ. If you were to do so, you're going to deny your own experience because your experience teaches you that you were saved by faith in Christ. But Paul has another weapon in his arsenal to move them back to the truth of the gospel that they, that they are saved by faith in Christ and not by their works. First of all, he points to their experience. And verses 6 then to 12 Paul will speak not about their experience, but about the testimony of Scripture. And what Paul is going to argue is that Scripture itself, and, and, and let, us, let us understand that when Paul refers to Scripture and talks about Scripture, he's referring primarily to the Old Testament. So Paul is arguing that the Old Testament Scriptures themselves teach that one is justified, one becomes a believer in God and has a relationship with God on the basis of faith and not by the person's obedience to the law. And this is where we have arrived at verse 6. What Paul does as he argues that salvation comes by faith, he turns to the greatest, well I would say arguably, but I believe nevertheless it, that he turns to the greatest figure, the greatest personality in the Old Testament, Abraham. The Jews traced their lineage to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jews. And so Paul, knowing that, he says, I want you to take a look at our origins. I want you to look at the father of our nation. You believe that he was in a relationship with God. You believe that he belonged to God. How did he enter into a relationship with God? Was it because Abraham was obedient to law or was it because of his faith? 
And Paul is going to say that when you read the Old Testament and when you read the scriptures, it will teach you that even in the Old Testament, that Abraham became and was accepted by God as righteous in his sight on the basis of faith and not by works. And that is what you find in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What Paul is arguing then is that both their experience and scripture in the illustration of Abraham teach that one is justified, declared righteous on the basis of faith in the Lord. I want us then to look at this verse because we're going to be commenting on a few other verses, but this is where we're going to be primarily anchored uh, during our time together. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. First, I want us to consider the fact of Abraham's faith in the biblical account of the patriarchal narratives. The fact of Abraham's faith in the biblical account. Judaism, which was the religion of the Jews in the first century, clearly embraced Abraham as the progenitor, the father of their faith. But in Judaism, Abraham was depicted as not a man of faith, but a man of obedience. They believe that Abraham was a man of obedience because he submitted to circumcision, as you have it in chapter 17 of Genesis. Furthermore, they also believe that Abraham was a man of obedience because he submitted himself and endured God's testing as we have it in Genesis 21. So for Judaism, Abraham was a man of great obedience. And so you can understand that they would have been saying, if you want to be a child of Abraham, you have to be obedient like Abraham was. Paul, however, turns to the Old Testament into scripture and uses Abraham as an example of faith, the faith that saves He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now this verse, that is Galatians 3 verse 6, is a quotation from Genesis 15 verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, we have the story of God's covenant with Abraham. But before that, we have in the account of Genesis what is called the primeval history in chapter 1 of Genesis to chapter 11, 26. We have the account of creation that God created the heavens and the earth and all that was found in it in six days. That the climax and the apex of his creation was the sixth day when he created man and woman. But as you read the biblical account, you will find in Genesis 3 that man did not retain his integrity in God, but that man sinned and departed from God. The sin of Adam in the garden opened the floodgate to sin. An avalanche of sin followed him. And by the time you arrive in Genesis chapter 6, sin has become so rampant, so pervasive, So horrible that God is grieved because the intent and purpose of the heart of man was continually evil. That all men thought about in the morning, at midday, and at night was to do evil. And so God responded. And he wiped the face of creation free. He destroyed that world with a flood. Every living creature died. 
And God then commenced a recreation. It's very interesting as you read in the chapters that follows, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, you will see that God is recreating the earth. And he takes the family of Noah as the first family through whom he would then cause the world to be repopulated. But you come to Genesis chapter 11 and you realize that Noah's family is not going to do the job. Because even though God has recreated the world in some fashion, the children and the descendants of Noah are themselves sinners. They're still evil people. And so we have in Genesis 11, in the account of Babel, these people said, come, let us build for ourselves a tower. They wanted to build a city and build a tower, a tower, they said, in their name, for themselves, a tower of hubris, of extreme arrogance, to celebrate their achievement, a a tower that would give them protection and defense. They're in a city that is a fenced city. So God comes down and looks. They're building a tower to heaven, but the thing is so puny, God has to descend to see it. It's so ridiculous, a tower they're trying to build. Come, let us build, and God says, come, let us go down and confuse we see how God confused the language at that time there was only one language God gave them different languages and scattered them Noah's family would not do the job but in chapter 11 of Genesis and verse 27 we have the story and the account of Terah and his family he had these three sons Nahor, Abram and Haran And the narrative goes on to talk about the family of Abraham. God is going to do a new work even though men have failed and have sinned. God is going to call one man, Abraham. And from him, God is going to bring a people. And from that people, God is going to bring a Messiah, a Savior. And so God begins with this one man. It's a marvelous story, the story of Abraham. Because we know that Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. He lived in what is now known as southern Iraq. He was a worshiper of the God called Sin. He was a pagan. And God called him when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans to get out from among his country and from his clan or from his family. And he departs. He travels from southern Iraq some 300 miles to Haran in northern Syria. And there he remained for a number of years. God again called him, as you read in Genesis 12, and promises him to give him a land. You see it in chapter 12, verse 3, and to give him a descendant, as numerous descendant. And to make him a blessing to the nations. But as you continue to read in the Genesis narrative, the promises of God are not fulfilled, at least not immediately. So by the time you come to Genesis chapter 15, where Paul quotes this verse, Abraham believed God was credited to him as righteousness. He still 
is barren. He has no children. And the Lord comes after he had fought a battle against Kedorlaomer. Kedorlaomer and his coalition had captured Lot, his nephew, Abraham's nephew. And so he had gone to battle. He has res- rescued him and his possessions. And God comes to Abraham in chapter 15 with tremendous words. He comes in a vision and he says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. His name later on is changed to Abraham, a father of a multitude. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. God comes to him and says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your defense. Don't be afraid of these kings that may be arrayed against you. I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. I am your great reward. You see, God is a rewarder of his people. This is a lavish promise of protection and provision. But this promise of God prompts Abraham to raise a vexing issue with God. I mean, God had promised to make Abraham a great nation to give him many children. But when God made the promise in Genesis 12, Abraham was already 75 years old. I suspect that he might have been a little bit anxious at 75 to be told he's going to become a father of a great nation. <laughs> but can you imagine what has happened as the years roll by? He goes up and down the land in Palestine and no children, not even one. And so God comes to him and says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And this prompts Abraham to raise the issue of his childless state with God. He effectively says to God, Lord, but what about the promise of the children? Abraham turns to the Lord. He says, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Abraham says, God, you have said to me, you are my exceeding great reward, but I have no children. In fact, I have to turn to my servant. I have to now adopt my servant so that he can become my heir to inherit all that I have. And God then takes Abraham outside. It suggests that, first of all, that Abraham was in his tent and showed him the stars of heaven, which suggests it was at night. And the Lord then said to him, this one, that is Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Despite the agonizingly long delay, divine delays are not divine denials. God may take a long time to work, but when he promises, he keeps his promises, however long he may take. God says, I'm going to give you a descendant as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And then we come to this theologically laden sentence in verse 6, and Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. This is the first usage of the term in the scriptures, the term aman, from which we get the English word amen. 
The term Aman simply means that which is dependable, faithful, reliable. When Abraham believed God, it means he accepted God as dependable and reliable and trustworthy and truthful. He believed. He rested on the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, and the reliability of God. Abraham believed in the Lord. And the narrator says that God credited him. Hasav, God reckoned to him righteousness. He believed in God and God credited, God gave to him the gift of righteousness. And Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3 verse 6. The Judaizers were saying that Abraham is a representative of obedience to the law. And Paul will later on show you that that could not be because the law came only or came 430 years afterwards. And so what Paul is saying, first of all, there is the fact of Abraham's faith. He was not justified, he was not declared righteous on the basis of his outstanding moral achievement or his obedience to the law, but he was justified by faith. In other words, words, his status before God, he received it not by doing, but by believing. And Paul then is intimating in verse 6 that to rely on the law or obedience to the law to earn salvation not only denies one's own experience of how one receives salvation, but one denies scripture as it is revealed in the case of Abraham that a sinner receives the gift of righteousness from God on the basis of faith alone. The fact of Abraham's faith. But I want us to look at again at Galatians 3, 6 and consider not only the fact of his faith, but the act of his faith as it is revealed by a wholehearted reliance on God. Notice Paul says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The use of the verb pistio, to believe, is of course, and I hardly need to point this out, an action word. It denotes then a living and dynamic faith. A faith that works. A faith that is an action. Abraham believed God, Paul says. Abraham believed. You see the act of. There is something in Abraham that goes out and takes hold of God. He believed. He acted. Faith is an act. It's an act of the heart. It's an act of the mind. Abraham believed the the fact of his faith, but the act of his faith. Now, the question that one might ask is, what then is the character of Abraham's faith? And I think that if you were to read through the scriptures, you will find that in Hebrews 11 and verses 8 to 13, it talks about Abraham's faith. One also reads about Abraham and his faith in James chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. But the clearest... And the best commentary on this verse here in Galatians 3 and 6 is in fact what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. So Romans chapter 4 provides the best commentary on what Paul means when he says just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
If one turns to, Galatia, to Romans chapter 4, even a superficial reading will tell you certain important things about the faith of Abraham. That Abraham's faith negatively was not merely a breezy optimism. It wasn't some Kierkegaardian leap in the dark. But Abraham's faith had a specific profile, a specific character. Abraham believed God. Well, what did that look like? How could you define and describe this faith that went out from Abraham and took hold of God? Paul explains this kind of faith. He shows us the profile of his faith. I want to suggest first that the distinctiveness of Abraham's faith manifested itself first and foremost in its God-centeredness. If there's anything to be said about Abraham's faith, Abraham believed God. It is that this faith was first and foremost a God-centered faith. That, I think, is very clear. For if you read the text in Genesis 15, verse 6, the narrator specifically, literally states that Abraham believed in God. It is not that he merely believed something about God, but he believed in God himself, in the character of God, in the faithfulness of God himself. He believed in him. I was reading an article recently uh, regarding uh, a former sports personality who had done a lot in sports and became a commentator. And he had some problems with the broadcaster, and the article was explaining the, the problems with the sports star and the broadcasters. Apparently, the broadcasters had said that this fellow uh, did not make himself available to comment on games. And uh, this former sports star returned by saying, no, I was not asked to comment on games. And the writer of the article ended it by saying, We believe in you, Michael. He didn't say, We believe you, or we believe that you are speaking the truth. He said, We believe in you. There is a difference, however nuanced you may consider it, between believing something or believing that something is true and believing in. Because when you believe in, one trusts and relies upon. To believe that what God says is true is to believe intellectually, and that is an aspect of faith. But to believe in God carries not only intellectual content, there is this reliance, there is this trusting, there is this depending upon. And so when we read Paul's reflection on Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believes God. He, mean, he means he believed in God. He merely believed, he did not merely believe that what God said was true. He trusted in God, and I think the passage in Galatians 4 tells us this. He trusted in God. In verse 17, he believed in God. 
As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham's faith in was in God. It was a God-centered faith. He believed in a God who was able to raise the dead. He believed in a God that could call things that did not exist into existence. A God who works ex nihilo. Who did not need pre-existing material to act. When God brought the creation into being, there was nothing there. Abraham believed in this God who had the ability to raise the dead and to call non-existent things into existence. You see, he did not rely on anything that he could perform. He trusted God to act on his behalf. He placed himself completely in the hand of God to bless him in his time and in his way. So the specific profile of his faith was one that was marked by God-centeredness. But secondly, the, the exceptional quality of Abraham's faith, and I think it's important that we concentrate on this, is that his faith was not only characterized by God-centeredness, but by a certain counterintuitiveness. Counterintuitiveness. I, I want to just explain that very quickly. When I say that his faith was marked by this counterintuitiveness, I'm talking about a faith that was contrary to intuition, or a faith that was exercised counter common sense expectation. That everything about Abraham's faith, from a human point of view, did not make sense. It was counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect rational people to do. How do I know that? Because in the passage in Romans 4, in verse 18, it says, regarding Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendant be. Contrary to hope, in hope believed. His faith was marked by this certain counterintuitiveness. Everything from a human point of view pointed away from hope. Abraham was almost 100 years old. When God said, I'm going to now give you, when God reiterated the promise to him, I'm going to give you a descendant as numerous as the stars of heaven. He was now almost 100 years old. And his body, we are told, was dead. He could not procreate. So not only did he have a problem with his age and with his inability to procreate, but he had a problem with his wife. Because Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old. And it isn't just because she was old, therefore he, he couldn't expect her to produce a child, but when she was young, she was also barren. So that from a logical perspective, it would appear from our vantage point irrational for a barren 100 years old man and a 90 year old woman to ever consider having one child <laughs> just one child instead of having a, a, a numberless descendant contrary to hope 
in hope believed. Abraham looked at the situation and it didn't make sense to him, but his faith was grounded in the God who had the ability to raise the dead. Contrary to hope, against hope, in hope believed. You see how very different the faith of Abraham was from the faith of those in Jesus' day. In John chapter 6, for instance, the Jews came to Jesus and they said to him, What sign, what sign will you perform that we may, be, we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? They wanted Jesus to show them a sign that they may believe. Even when he was on the cross, they were saying, come down from the cross, do something spectacular, and we'll believe. Abraham did not ask God to do any spectacular thing, and God did not show him any spectacular thing, but Abraham believed because God had spoken the word. God had said, I'm going to give you a descendant, and Abraham said, Amen. You have said it, Lord, so will it be. His faith was counterintuitive. It was against normal expectation. And this is the faith that believers exhibit. This is a faith that does not depend upon sight. The New Testament affirms this. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. We, we, we read, we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. You see, the Christian is one who looks not at the tangible and the material, but the invisible and the eternal. It is important that we recognize that our faith is by character, by very definition, counterintuitive. But if I may point out one other aspect regarding the profile of Abraham's faith, that his faith was characterized not only by God-centeredness and by this counterintuitiveness, but it was manifested in its steadfastness. For we read, furthermore, that and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And Paul is expanding here in these verses 19 to 21 on the kind of faith that Abraham possessed. He, his faith was not one that did not become weak. He did not waver. He did not vacillate in faith. He didn't go back and forth. Lord, you're going to give me a son? No, you're not going to give me one. Lord, you're going to give me a son? No, you're not. He didn't do that. He did not waver in unbelief. In fact, the, the scripture says that he grew strong in faith. And I think that this is a point that we do not always consider, that his faith in God was one that kept growing. And Paul lists here two participle phrases that explains how, or explain how, how Abraham's faith remains steadfast and strong. He says, giving glory to God. Giving glory to God. That's the first participle that explains the strength of his faith. That he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And by that, Paul signifies that Abraham, that the secret of Abraham's faith, or the secret of his strong faith, 
in the, is that he acknowledged and glorified God. He glorified God by his faith, by acknowledging God, by acknowledging God's ability to carry out his promise. He became strong in faith, being fully persuaded that God possessed the power to fulfill his promises. And so his faith, was rest, his faith was strong because he glorified God, because his faith was one that says, God, you have spoken and you're, you have the ability to fulfill your word. Abraham then believed God with this God-centered, counterintuitive, and steadfast faith. And God counted him as righteous. It, it's important that Paul tells us this in our passage in Galatians 3. That God counted him righteous. Doesn't mean that faith was accepted as righteousness. So that faith now becomes a work. Abraham believed God. And God gave him the gift of righteousness. Faith is not itself a work. It is a gift of God. God counted it. God received him and granted him righteousness. So we've seen first then the fact of his faith. And we've seen the act of his faith in believing in God in what I've seen as his God-centered, counterintuitive, and steadfast faith. But I want to hurry on before I draw a few applications and conclude. We need to know that Paul continues at least in verse 7 to 9 regarding the significance of this faith. And I think that unless one understands this, one will not understand why Paul is using Abraham as an example of faith. He says, therefore, he's going to draw a conclusion. He's going to show the significance of Abraham's faith. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The Jews consider themselves to be children of Abraham, just by biological, physical descent. And Paul is saying, to be a true child of Abraham, one must also possess the faith that Abraham possessed. This God-centered, this counterintuitive this steadfast faith. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith of are our sons of Abraham. And he goes back and he says that the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you shall all the nations, in you shall all the nations shall be blessed. And so what he's doing here is saying that when God promised to bless Abraham and to bless the nations in him. In Genesis 3, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, that in fact God was promising that not only Abraham would receive the gifts of righteousness by faith, but all who belong to him by faith, all who are identified with him by faith will also receive the gift of righteousness. And so he summarizes this in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. It is faith, Paul is saying, that makes one a child of Abraham, and it is faith that brings to us the blessing of Abraham that is the gift of righteousness. I read a story some time ago about a new nation that was formed, and this new nation had one television station. The television station was controlled by the government, and all they showed on this station was government programs, what the government was building, what the policies were, over and over and over again. So the people revolted. They couldn't take it anymore. They wanted a, a television station that would show ordinary programs like other sensible people in other countries could watch television. 
And the government eventually relented and gave them a second channel, channel two. Channel one belonged to government, channel two belonged to airing of ordinary programs. People were very happy. And then one day, announcement was made that the government, the, prime, the president was going to be giving a speech on channel one. And that every citizen was to tune in to channel one and to watch channel one. And so this, this fellow did exactly that. He turned in and tuned in and began listening to the speech of the, the president. But the fellow went on and on and on and on and on. The president didn't seem to stop and the fellow was bored. Couldn't take it anymore, he switched to channel two. And when he turned to channel two, there he was confronted with a soldier with a gun pointed at him saying, switch back to channel one. <laughs> we live in a world where we have a great desire to do things our way. We want our way. Years ago, someone, another preacher was talking about Frank Sinatra, one of the greatest voices and greatest singer that the world has ever known. And he was reminding us that there was a cartoon of Frank Sinatra when Frank Sinatra died. He had his jacket over his shoulder and he was going into heaven and he was singing. Guess what? I did it my way. We want our own way. And we think we can do it our own way. But it's important to know that there is only one way to salvation. One way into the kingdom of God. One way into a relationship with God and it is by faith. You may ask the question then what does this story about Abraham, a man who believed over 2,000 years before Christ came, how can this be of any relevance to us today? But I want to suggest to you that there are a number of reasons why we must pay attention to what Paul says. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. First and foremost, fundamentally, what Paul is demonstrating is that our Bible is not merely a collection of stories, but that it is an integral whole. And particularly when it concerns salvation, the story of Abraham teaches us that the same way people were saved in the Old Testament is the same way they are saved in the New Testament. That for as far as God is concerned, there is only one way of salvation. It was by faith and by grace in the Old Testament, and it is by faith and by grace in the New Testament. That you and I are connected to the saints of old. There are not two ways to God. From before we were in our mother's womb, God had ordained that man should be saved merely by believing in him. It's the only way. And this is important because millions of people today are doing precisely what they ought not to do. They're attempting to work their way into heaven. They're attempting to court God's favor by doing good. People today believe if I go to church two times or three times a year on a special occasion, I earn brownie points. They believe if they engage in charitable deeds, they are somehow more favored by God. People will take 
and go on pilgrimages. They will fast during Lent, doing all kinds of things to earn God's favor. But it, it needs to be pointed out that you cannot receive God's pardon and a righteous status on the basis of your merit or work. You need to know that. It is not only unbelievers who need to know that, it is the Christians. It is us who need to know that. And you say, well, but this is, this is basal. This is basic truth. Let me remind you that, that this teaching, that one is justified by faith, was first given here in Galatians to what we would call evangelical Christians. The church in Galatia, they were Christians. But Paul was preaching to them that you can't be justified by works. You can only be justified by faith. You see, we have the same problem that they had in Galatia. Attentions to depart. Attentions to depart from the doctrine of salvation by faith to a doctrine of salvation by works. It happens even when we are using the means of grace. There is a possibility that we can turn the means of grace into means of working our way into heaven. You check the Christian who believes that he must go to communion. He must attend church. He must pray. He must read his Bible. He must do good works. These are all things that scripture enjoins on the believer. But it is possible that you and I may begin to attend worship, pray, read our Bibles, do good works. Because somehow these things make us feel good about ourselves. They make us believe deep down that somehow God is more pleased with us because we have done these and that, my friend, is degenerating into a salvation by works. By all means, we must pray. By all means, we must read the Bible and worship. But we do these things because we have received favor. Not to receive favor. It is because of grace that has saved us that we worship. But we must never do these things to think that somehow we can attract God's attention over here, saying, God, look at me, look at me, am I not doing fine? We're saved by grace through faith. And we serve him because of what he has done, not to earn his favor. It's important as Christians, as we do these things and engage in things that we call church, that we do not do that. Somehow in the hope and expectation that we can, by our deeds, attract divine favor. We must ensure, secondly... That we have the faith of Abraham. We must believe in the Lord as Abraham did. Abraham believed in the Lord who was to come. But we must believe in the Lord who has come. The Lord Jesus Christ. We must look away from ourselves. Because faith as one writer tells us. Is to look away from ourselves. And that's important. To look away from our wretchedness. To look away from our merits. And to look to God's provision, who is Christ, who died for our sins. We must, we must trust in Christ. We must trust in him because this faith glorifies God. It acknowledges that God is sufficient for our needs and for our salvation. 
This faith glorifies God because it is born of need. True faith comes from a sense of need. And one of the reasons that faith glorifies God, it is because when we believe on God, or we believe in God, we are in fact affirming our need of God. One of the greatest lessons that is lost on millions is the need for God. You and I can do nothing. We cannot take the next breath apart from God. How then can we ever think that we could save ourselves by our works? The faith that, that latches on to God is a faith that sees its need and sees in God the satisfaction of all its needs. You must turn to the Lord and believe if you're to have the faith of Abraham. Scripture says, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, and everyone who believes on him shall not be ashamed. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And though he dies, yet shall he live. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. If you are to have the gift of righteousness, you must have the gift of faith, the faith of Abraham. How do you receive it? You receive it by asking God. It comes from God as a gift. You must trust in what Christ has done, for only then can you ever be a child of Abraham. And finally, you must walk by faith and not by sight. I understand that Galatians chapter 3 impresses upon us the need for faith in Christ if we are to be saved. But if you read the rest of Galatians, you will see that the faith by which we receive righteousness, though we receive righteousness by faith alone, that faith does not continue alone. Because the rest of Galatians, in chapter 5 particularly, will tell you that faith must lead to a life of obedience. You and I are saved by faith, but we must walk and live the Christian life by faith. We must manifest by faith all that God requires of us. Faith must be demonstrated in a new way of living. It must lead us to the obedience of faith, where we live our lives in obedience, obedience that comes from trusting in God. You see, the Christian life from first to last is faith. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must therefore endeavor to live by faith. You see, whatever is not of faith is of sin. If you cannot act in all your dealings in life in faith, then that is sin. So may God help us that we rejoice in this salvation that comes through faith in Christ and live a life Depended upon his grace, for Jesus' sake. Amen.